You're listening to the Hayek Program Podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, my name is Jordan Lofthaus. I'm a senior fellow with the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics. I'm also a program director of academic and student programs at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. This episode of the Hayek Program podcast is in a mini-series on economics and the environment. Today, I'm very excited to be chatting with Katie Wright, who's a wonderful researcher and a friend of mine. In today's conversation, Katie and I will be talking about the intersection of economics, sustainability, and environmentalism. But first, I want to give Katie a proper introduction. She currently works as a Perk Research Fellow, where she's an expert on water policy, Her work includes exploring solutions to water scarcity issues in the Western United States. She recently graduated with a PhD in sustainability from Arizona State University. We know each other from way back. Uh, She's participated in many of Mercatus's fellowships, including the Oscar Morgenstern Fellowship and the Visiting Dissertation Fellowship. She also received Arizona State University's School of Sustainability Outstanding Graduate Comprehensive Exam Award. So welcome, Katie, and thanks for taking the time to talk with me today. Oh, thanks, Jordan. That was a really sweet introduction. And, you know, right back at you, you're a good friend and a great researcher. So it's, I'm really excited to be here and to chat with you. Thank you so much. So to just dive straight in, um, I want to start off with kind of some big scale questions that help set the stage for the rest of our conversation. So your PhD is in sustainability, but a lot of people may not know what the academic field of sustainability is or what it looks like. Can you kind of give me a sense of what sustainability means as an academic discipline? So this is one of the things that I think a lot of people are confused about when they hear I have a PhD in sustainability, because it kind of has been used as a catch-all term. And even within the research, like sustainability studies, there isn't total agreement on like what that word means and what factors make something or, you know, don't make something sustainable. So the reason that I think that's like a benefit in my discipline is it kind of let me really hone in on the framework of sustainability and exploring that term with the toolkit of economics. So I like to talk about the sustainability that I studied and what my dissertation really focuses on is what does proper management of resources in terms of how do we consider future generations in our resource consumption of today? And I use the toolkit of economics to kind of explore what that meant in the field of water. So a lot of my research is, well, how did we kind of get to this water scarcity issue today? Um, What are the institutions, the factors, the policies, the hydrological factors that contributed to water scarcity? And then how do we get ourselves out of this water scarcity? And so that hopefully gives like a a little bit of a box to the uh, catch-all term of sustainability in my case. 
Yeah. So in sustainability, it sounds like you were using, you mentioned the economic toolkit, things like that. Is that what everyone was using? Were your colleagues, like also the other students, grad students in sustainability, all doing economics or quantitative methods? No, I would say there was actually a pretty small uh, portion of us that did quantitative approaches to sustainability issues. And they were just, I mean, there was a lot of diversity amongst the students and the research topics and the ways that they thought about what sustainability meant. And even amongst the students, there was disagreement about how we should think about sustainability and which aspects we should prioritize, which really led to kind of a fruitful discussion about well, how do we manage resources? You know, how do we allocate scarce resources amongst competing uses um, and thinking about that carefully and in a way that doesn't disregard other people's thoughts and feelings and opinions and beliefs, um, but also balancing that with, well, we have to do something. <laughs> we have to get something done. We have to, you know, we can't live in water scarcity forever. So I would say that my lab, the lab that did natural resource economics and really focused on that toolkit we were probably a lab of maybe like eight or nine people, which in my case was great because I got a lot of one-on-one -on -one time with my advisor. I got lots of intense feedback in our lab meetings, many chances to present. Um, so it was a really good experience for me. And it was also a good exposure to learn how do I communicate economic ideas and concepts and, you know, kind of the philosophy of economics to people who might be skeptical of it or might even think that it has done a lot of bad in the world. Um, and to think about how do I phrase these ideas and package them in a way that doesn't discount those beliefs. So, yeah, as you were having conversations there, especially with people from different frameworks, was there a way in which you navigated kind of the normative, like the shoulds, we should do things versus like the positive, like the cold heart analysis type of things? Were those, were people who disagreed with you, were they usually on the like more normative side or were there lots of kind of positive analysis disagreements? Yeah, I think there's a lot of disagreement on, well, should we use the toolkit of economics? Is it fair to use that? Is it, you know, the best way of doing things? And a lot of it was the disagreement came from, well, you know, you might want to like involve more communities and like really focus on community engagement and participation in like creating of rules, which both you and I have a deep appreciation for that type of perspective. But it also, in my opinion, had to be balanced with, well, we have to do something. Like we, we need to have, like, if we want, if we want water scarcity to be addressed, we have to balance the kind of like shoulds and what we would like the world to look like with the reality of this is how it looks. And this is the problem we're facing. And I think that another, th another disagreement was often on a more like, well, I don't like that method. I don't like that approach to managing a natural resource. And the approach I would always take is, well, okay, we both agree that we want more people to use water in a way that's, you know, important or relevant or, you know, that they prioritize, that they assign the value to. And so to focus on this like outcome of like, this is the outcome we want. We want the same thing. Now, instead of saying my method is better, let's look at what method actually achieves that outcome. And so... In one case, it would be, all right, well, we want to limit the amount of, you know, carbon in the atmosphere. Okay, well, you know, one suggestion would be, well, we should just ban gasoline cars. We should just eliminate that. 
And, you know, my economic brain turns on, I'm like, Ooh, I don't know if that's the best way to do that. And like, let's think through, you know, the incentives that creates and what might happen. And then the point, you know, I would usually agree on with that person is yes, we both want to limit carbon emissions. Now, if we use the policy tool of banning automobiles, we actually might be regressive. So now we're compromising the justice angle. We're saying, well, some families are just going to be more disadvantaged than other people. And so really like thinking through that and explaining it and, and trying to show like economics is a toolkit. It's a framework. It's a way of analyzing problems. And where we do disagree on the toolkit, let's focus on the outcome and then work backwards. Yeah, that's really great. Because as you were talking about that, I think two of the biggest and most important tools in the economic toolkit that all people should understand for basically every facet of life, not just, you know, carbon emissions or water scarcity or what have you, is the idea of trade-offs and unintended consequences. Let's say we're just an imagined world where we pass along, we ban all internal combustion engines today, like no more for the sake of humanity in the future. Like, well, that's going to have huge implications right now, huge trade-offs. Uh, I can imagine, you know, a whole slew of negative unintended consequences that can arise. That doesn't mean that we don't do anything today, but we have to think about how we navigate the trade-offs and the potential unintended consequences that are going to come about. Totally. I think one concept in grad school that really helped me think through like the policy tools and the things we choose to like manage or not manage or regulate or don't regulate, you know, whatever dichotomy you want to use was like intensive and extensive margins. Are you familiar with this? No, tell me a little more. Yeah. Okay. So it's like, I, I learned it from like the literature on fisheries, <laughs> ironically, but it's the idea that in fisheries, you had this kind of uh, common pool or open access resource. And it was um, individuals were taking too many fish out. And so the idea was if we keep fishing at this rate, the fishery will collapse. So we can manage that in certain ways. And one way that uh, fishery managers thought about managing it was to say, all right, well, let's just limit the number of boats. Let's just, you know, say only 10 boats can go out, or maybe we'll limit the size of the boat, or maybe we'll limit the technology used. And we call that the intensive margin. You're, you're basically capping how intensely someone can fish. But the problem with that is what we see in the deadliest catch, which is you kind of have this like race to fish where if you cap the number of boats that can go out, then people just get bigger boats. Or if you cap the size of the boat, the technology becomes more intensive. And so they found that it was not that they weren't achieving the goal of limiting fishing when they capped this, this intensive margin. But instead, they then you know looked at like the extensive margin, which is the idea that, all right, well, based on fishery science, we know there's a sustainable rate to take out of the fishery in any given season. And so let's think about just capping that saying you can only take out a hundred fish total. Now figure out amongst yourselves how you will do that. And what they found is, you know, in capping that extensive margin, the number of fish you could take out all of a sudden, you know, you didn't have this race to fish. You didn't have fishermen, you know, making bigger boats or fishing, you know, more often you actually had them kind of you know, come up with a, a way amongst themselves to figure out how do we get this sustainable rate of harvest. And so I think about that a lot when I think about environmental problems and are we capping the intensive or the extensive margin? Because the intensive margin means that we're going to have kind of this, 
what they call the effort creep in fisheries. They're, you're going to have, if you cap the number of automobile, automobiles on the road, you know, what's the unintended consequence? What's the effort creep? Where do people go now? Um, whereas if you cap, you know, the extensive margin, the, you know, amount of carbon that can be emitted in a given state or whatever, all of a sudden you allow individuals and entrepreneurs to be creative in how they meet that goal. And what naturally emerges, hopefully, is a lower cost method of achieving that outcome that everybody wanted to begin with. Yeah, and that sounds a lot like other cap and trades that we've seen with other things too. Like um, I'm thinking early 90s, like the sulfur cap and trade that ended up, you know, basically solving the acid rain crisis from late 80s, early 90s kind of a thing. I know there's lots of experimentation going on with carbon cap and trade systems. But yeah, you can think of the other way. I guess the intensive margin that they used to do kind of like you must use this technology or whatever. And people ended up figuring all sorts of workarounds. Yeah, exactly. And this is kind of like, you know, some theories behind, you know, if you do want to limit the amount of carbon or the amount of waste that waste runoff or stuff like that, it really matters where the regulation is placed. Are you placing the regulation on the total outcome or are you placing it on the types of things people can do? And so the intensive versus extensive margin, if you think about what you're capping in terms of that, you can start to think better about the unintended consequences. And so that's that's one tool I use to communicate with people in sustainability about, okay, well, you know, if we cap this, then where might people go? Because the option is rarely, you know, like with plastic straws, when you ban plastic straws, it wasn't that people stopped using straws, they shifted. They substituted something. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, are we comfortable with the substitute? Does the substitute still help us achieve our outcome? Or are we actually kind of undoing or undermining our original goal by, you know, banning something instead of saying, well, actually, we just want less waste. So how do we get less waste? Yeah, I think that's incredible. And I think this conversation we've been having is a great segue to the next thing I wanted to ask you about, which is... So you've been through several of, you know, the Mercatus Center's fellowships where we focus on mainline political economy. It sounded like you already had a pretty extensive background with economics before then. But based on kind of the readings and discussions from the fellowships, how did the focus on mainline political economy, particularly, you know, the Austrian, Virginia and Bloomington schools, how did that supplement what you were learning and researching for your PhD? And were there any contradictions from what you were learning? Yeah. So one thing I remember was Hayek's, I think it's the theory of complex phenomena where he talks about pattern versus point predictions. And so a lot of my background had been kind of in like the Austrian school. So thinking about, you know, how do we interpret economic problems with that? But then I obviously went to a grad school and it was, I had quantitative training. So I'm taking econometrics, I'm taking statistics classes, I'm thinking about math modeling. And, you know, it kind of was like this, like almost butting of heads at first and trying to figure out, wow, okay, so I've been told for so long that I can't make point predictions, but now my entire degree is in some ways creating point predictions. And so what does that mean? Like, can I actually say anything with econometric models? Are they even useful? I mean, I kind of like them. I actually really love coding. I love stats. I love econometrics. And it was something that I thought a lot about during the Morgenstern Fellowship. And the way that I started to kind of reconcile those two ideas was, well, 
the models tell me something about the magnitude and direction. So if my theory is correct, if I use kind of the Austrian, Virginia, Bloomington school, those ideas to inform how my models are set up or what I would expect, then what the model tells me is it gives me kind of like a, yeah, you're on the right track. No, it's not there. (laughs) Or it gives me a, hey, like, you know, there's a positive effect or a negative effect. And so it kind of put like the boundaries on the things I can do or accomplish with econometric models without totally eliminating the econometric model. I think it was Brian Leonard that told me this, but he had mentioned early on in my PhD, he's like, you know, your econometric models are only as strong as the theory that underpins them. And so you really have to make sure that your theory is solid and that you have like theoretical predictions based on economics about what to expect. And then you run your model and you try to understand the results given what you know about theory. And if those two things contradict, you need to do your due diligence in saying, did I set this up wrong? And sometimes when they do contradict, they contradict because maybe theory needs to be changed. But we have to be, I think we have to be very patient with like, you know, suggesting that we found a novel result that contradicts everything we've ever known before. Um, But it also, so, you know, kind of tie a bow on all this. I think that idea of like pattern versus point predictions really uh, keeps me humble in the things that I recommend or the, um, you know, I try to stay away from just like giving people amounts or like, um, specific like estimates because you don't know if those are perfectly true. There are things you've missed. So I don't know if that answers your question. That's fantastic. Cause I was thinking, I think that does a very good job at balancing, you know, kind of the methodological concerns that say like people in the Austrian tra- tradition would bring up, like you were saying point predictions versus pattern predictions but it doesn't mean we want to throw the baby out with the bathwater when it comes to quantitative analysis. It's we need to have a, a proper understanding of what quantitative analysis can tell us and what it can't tell us. I guess maybe intellectual humility, like you just said, is kind of the key here. Yeah, I think a posture of intellectual humility is how we should approach both theory and you know econometric modeling, if I'm being honest. And I think that's one of the really like wonderful things about the Morgan Stern Fellowship for me is it was filled with just super intelligent scholars who knew this theory so well, and they could help kind of like, help me understand, all right, where is my theory off? Why is this not exactly right? Or, you know, how do other thinkers tie into this, which then, you know, kind of put the bounds on the econometric model. But then what I could contribute is saying, well, actually these things that we said in theory they're actually validated. Like we can, we have data that like validates this theory. And it's like this beautiful synthesis of mainline and dare I say mainstream (laughs) kind of meeting and saying, wow, we can maybe say something with quantitative modeling that isn't a point prediction. It's just a pattern validation. Yeah, exactly. And it's really cool that you can tie together these seemingly disparate or things that are at odds with one another and actually in almost a kind of synergy make something better than what you started with. As you were talking, I was thinking about how, you know, intellectual humility, humility with quantitative stuff. I guess if you want to take the point predictions as gospel truth, there have to be a lot of things that you have to be really certain about, which is 
you have to know that your data is super duper accurate and it's actually measuring what you think it's measuring. And it's capturing every variable that you could, that could possibly influence your outcome variable. Exactly. And then you have to know that you're using the right theory. And underneath that, you have to know that you're using the right methodological approach. You know, however you set up your specification, then you have to make sure that you have controlled for every possible thing and you have to, you know, so again, yes, I think it can be a valuable tool. But like you said, you have to be able to balance strengths and weaknesses of various approaches. Yeah. And I think like something I also learned from the fellowship. So Hayek, you know, his piece on um, the use of knowledge in society. So he talks about the difference between scientific knowledge and tacit knowledge and how scientific knowledge is, you know, kind of having its moment in academia. And, and that very much is kind of the mantra of econometric modeling is like we can capture all the variables or or we can come up with a method that allows us to control for things for the uncontrollable or like the unforeseen. And, and to some extent, it's like, you know, there are these really super fun and engaging and interesting econometric methods that do allow you to say some pretty interesting things and control for things that we didn't think we could control for before. But to Hayek's point, and I think, you know, my colleagues in sustainability would agree, some knowledge isn't a data point. <laughs> some knowledge is gained from the doing of the thing and can't be captured by, you know, what we measure. And so to also have respect for that and understand that even if our models are capturing every single measurable piece of information and they're controlling for all, you know, confounding variables and we've clustered our errors correctly and we've chosen, you know, the particular method, we still may be missing an important piece because it's not actually data in the scientific sense that it's data. Yeah. And that makes me think too, like you were saying, Hayek talked about tacit knowledge. He also, I guess, implied the idea of inarticulate knowledge that Lavoy, Don Lavoy later, you know, wrote extensively about and how, well, if it's inarticulate knowledge, it literally is something we can't write down because it's inarticulate by definition. And so that makes it a lot harder. We simply can't incorporate that into models. And so we'll need to factor that in some other way into our analysis. Right. And that I think puts, you know, kind of brings Lynn Ostrom's work front and center uh, and Doug North too, and Coase and all these, you know, great economists, new institutional economists of institutions matter. The rules matter. Um, property rights matter. Like some of these things that we overlooked in the past actually play a critical role and explain why at times our theory didn't match up with our data. So this is, you know, governing the commons is the things we observe don't match the outcomes of theory. And why is that? And it was for a lot of the, I would argue, intangibles, the, you know, inarticulate knowledge of the way institutions are organized, the communities that participate in the management of natural resources. And to some extent, like it was looking at observing those things and observing the contradiction with theory at the time that kind of led to this furthering of, wow, okay, we need to think about these things differently, which I think for economists today and for myself included, should once again, give us a posture of humility when we are, you know, investigating questions because we don't know what we don't know. And sometimes the things people know, they can't articulate to us, but those things still matter. 
Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up people like North and Ostrom. When you talked about Ostrom, it also made me think about her push for a multiple methods methodology. And so these super complex social issues that we're trying to understand and sometimes provide suggestions for solutions kind of a thing, it's going to be really difficult to know the right answer for these super complex problems. And so you know, we, we're going to need econometrics, we're going to need experimental, we're going to need, you know, on the ground, ethnographic, qualitative research, we're going to need institutional analysis, we're going to need all these different things to help us triangulate on what we're doing. Otherwise, we might be deluding ourselves <laughs> in some senses. Yeah, yeah, completely. And I mean, like, when I hear that, it motivates me to like reflect and say, well, how am I collaborating with other people? Who am I including? Who am I listening to? Who am I not listening to? What methods am I ignoring? What methods am I over-prioritizing? And I think it just like brings this great challenge to other academics and researchers and even students to say, how are we working with each other to actually solve the problems that we see today? And whether that means like involving communities, whether it means involving economists, whether it involves, you know, including ethnographers, like it's, it's this giant collaborative effort that we all need to be participating in and have a responsibility, I think, especially given, you know, issues like climate change, like these kind of global, it, global commons issues, I think, for lack of a better term, which you've written about of are we actually researching these or are we actually trying to address these problems with multiple methods, or are we so stuck in our, you know, our ways that we're convinced that if we just have the right model, we can solve it all? Yeah, exactly. On this conversation that we've been having about mainline political economy, I'm wondering from like, say the Austrian or Virginia or Bloomington school in particular, what's like one of the biggest ideas that you wish you could effectively communicate to other people in the field of sustainability? That's a good question. I think it would probably be the first point that we talked about. So this idea that like pattern and point predictions are different from each other and we can still use quantitative methods, which yield a point estimate by like the way they're structured without necessarily citing that point estimate. So it's like, it's, yes, it gives you a point estimate, but we can interpret it as a pattern. And so I feel like that would actually alleviate a lot of the worries that some qualitative scientists rightly have about, you know, econometric modeling, which is, well, how do you know that you've captured everything? Or how do you know that you're actually like, that number is what you think it is um, because you've, you know, missed the inarticulate knowledge. And it's like, well, if we don't say, oh, this means, you know, 0.001 definitively, we instead say, well, actually, we think that it's small relative to, you know, something else or, you know, good economics is comparative economics. So our estimates are couched in comparison and we're using them as a pattern recognition tool, not necessarily a point predictor. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. Uh, now I want to turn a little bit to your job as a research fellow at Perk. Um, I'm wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what PERC is and its views on environmental issues and what do you think is unique about the PERC approach? Yeah, so um, you probably know this, but I've been a fan of PERC for a while. Um, that's where, you know, I met our mutual friends, Arthur and Camille. And then, you know, through that network, we all kind of ended up becoming friends, which is, you know, amazing. 
Um, but Perk, the reason I was first attracted to Perk and, you know, eventually ended up working for them is they're a conservation nonprofit. Um, so we, we all care about the same outcome, which is, you know, how do we preserve the environment? How do we think about environmental issues and conservation? But they use the toolkit of economics. And so the idea is, okay, how do we think about the issues in the world today that relate to the environment and think about innovative and creative like market tools that help solve that. So balancing this idea of like, we want environmental preservation without necessarily asking, like putting it at odds with economics. And I think for a long time, I think we've made a lot of strides now, but I think for a long time, people thought that those like economics and the environment were kind of like competing things. And, you know, was, economics was responsible for destroying the environment. The environment was responsible for suppressing the market or stuff like that. And Perk really wants to think outside of the box and say, no, like these two things can coexist. And how do we allow landowners to benefit while also, you know, preserving forests or like national parks or, you know, all these great things. So yeah, that's kind of what Perk is broadly. And then my role is a research fellow. So they hired me after I got my PhD to kind of think about how do we want to manage water? <laughs> like, What are the innovative market-based solutions um, that can help alleviate water scarcity in the Western United States? Yeah. So I want to hear about that. So tell us about the West. <laughs> is the West doomed? What do we do about it? <laughs> I'm a Westerner myself. Oh. I'm from Idaho. I have you yeah. know, lived my whole life hearing about water fights and water rights and all these different things. Um, yeah. What's your take on it all? So I feel like my take is probably a little bit controversial in that I kind of break water scarcity up into three giant buckets. And because of that kind of framing of the problem, to me, I end up being more hopeful. Um, so there are kind of three buckets of water scarcity. The first is climate-induced scarcity. So this is the idea that kind of weather variability so less precipitation, warmer, hotter temperatures are going to affect the timing and supply of water. So in any given year, we might have slightly less water, we might have slightly more, and that water is being delivered at different times. And that matters because we could have, you know, quote unquote, enough water or the same amount of water. But if it's delivered at an opposite time to like the growing season, then, you know, to a farmer, that's drought. Um, so it's kind of this idea that there's a mismatch between when we have water and when we need water, and then also just the quantity of water, the supply might be limited. The second type of water scarcity that I like to talk about is population-induced scarcity, and it tends to sound pretty ominous, and I don't mean for it to. It's, it's just the idea that you might have uh, people moving to relatively water-scarce or arid regions, and so the demand outpaces the supply in that region. And then finally, my favorite type of water scarcity, um, <laughs> not really, but it's the um, it's policy induced scarcity, which is the idea that the rules, the institutions, the incentives that those rules create change the way that we interact with water. So the idea that prior appropriation, the doctrine that allocates water in the West may create certain incentives that cause farmers or you know the average city user to use more water than they would had that rule not been in place. And so kind of a tangible example of this is use it or lose it. So the idea that you know in order to maintain your water right, 
you have to use the your entire amount for the specific purpose that you identified in the 1800s. Otherwise, you're at risk of losing it. You also can't trade that water. So all of a sudden we see, oh gosh, okay, this makes sense why alfalfa is grown in the desert because a farmer, you know, might have five acre feet of water and he has it for agriculture and he can't change the use of it and he can't trade any excess water. So the only way to create value essentially is to plant alfalfa in the desert and sell it. Um, so those are kind of like the three buckets of water scarcity. Um, and I think that there's a large portion or there's a you know sizable amount at least in this policy induced scarcity. And so what I would like to see is how can we in the short term in the long term, address policy induced scarcity, given that, you know, maybe in the long run, we can develop technology that adapts to climate variability. In the long run, we people might move. But also, you know, in, in the short run, we can figure out, well, how do we change the incentives of prior appropriation? In the long run, do we change prior appropriation? So does that kind of make sense? I'll pause there since it was kind of a lots of words. No, that was great. I've actually never thought of it with those kind of those three buckets. And that was actually very helpful for me. And I might steal that from you in the future yeah, when I'm talking do. about this. Uh, but yeah, the policy induced in scarcity is really fascinating. And like you were saying, I think there there may be a lot of frustrations or, you know, problems being exacerbated because of this. You might know more about this. I believe there have been a few changes recently in some of the Western states with their policy. So I think Montana has changed it for an approved use is to leave it in stream. So like water can be left in stream now. Like if you own the water rights, you can leave it in stream for, you know, fisheries because fishing is a huge part of not only Montana's culture, but also, you know, their tourism industry, which is huge. And then I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Utah just changed their laws because, um, you know, the Great Salt Lake has been shrinking and shrinking just the way that, you know, the geologically it's worked out. There's lots of heavy metals and other toxins that are on the bed, like the, you know, the lake bed of the Great Salt Lake when the water is gone that can blow toxic dust straight into downtown Salt Lake City, which is obviously a problem. And so there's an incentive for everybody to put back as much water into the Great Salt Lake as possible. And for a long time, that was just like legally impossible to do. But they recently changed that. And now, you know, more water is being allowed to flow into the Great Salt Lake. And hopefully that will solve much of the problem. Yeah, so I think that's one that is a great example of how in the short term, we can come up with innovative solutions to think about policy-induced scarcity. So if we can identify policy-induced scarcity and we can identify maybe the legislation or um, the parts that parts of you know policy that actually contribute to this, well, maybe we can change it and we can come up with solutions like in Utah where we say, well, actually, you know, we'll, we'll change a little bit of the beneficial or the beneficial use clause so that leaving it in stream or, you know, returning it to the Great Salt Lake is actually is actually a beneficial use. So all of a sudden you can you know, have this partnership between conservation organizations or the state of Utah and farmers where they're like, yeah, I'll temporarily lease my water back to Utah to, you know, put it back in the lake. And then, you know, in a few years, maybe I'll take it out and grow more crops with it. And, you know, that's just like one of those short term kind of mechanisms that we can use. But I want to put like two caveats on that. And so the first is, and let me see if I can phrase this correctly. 
Utah with having conversations with, you know, some of the people working on this beneficial use clause, it's become pretty clear to me that, you know, markets are only as strong as the property rights are well-defined in the sense of, so one of the things that Utah is struggling with is, well, how do we measure how much water is saved? So we've created this mechanism where we have, you know, beneficial use, you know, defined differently, but now we actually haven't really been measuring how much water is used and we actually don't have a way to kind of track where it's going. And so the, the number of people who can participate and monitor and, and we can track the movement of that water to ensure it ends up in the Great, Lake, uh, the Great Salt Lake is limited. So it's, it's also this kind of like tension of like, wow, economic theory tells us markets only work when property rights are well-defined. So in what ways do we need to start, you know, defining our property rights really well and thinking about this enforcement and this tradability and this measurability of our property rights so that we can actually, you know, these market mechanisms can work. And the second part, the second caveat that I want to talk about is when we think about water scarcity and those three buckets, we need to think about which solutions address or allow people to address all three buckets. So, and the best example of this, I think, is the Bureau of Reclamation's uh, temporary suspension of, is it use it or lose it or beneficial use? Basically, what they say is if you save water and put it back into Lake Mead, we'll pay you and we won't count that against, you know, your seven years of non-use for abandonment. Um, and so for people who don't know what abandonment is, essentially, if you don't use your water right um, for seven years or so, it's considered abandoned and the water right is taken away and reallocated to someone else. So the Bureau of Reclamation said, we're going to suspend that because we need to save water. But the idea is, all right, they're addressing, you know, the climate induced scarcity and they're addressing the, the population induced scarcity because they're moving water to where it's needed, which is cities right now. And they're, you know, addressing, you know, the limited supply, but what they're, they're not addressing in the long term is the policy induced scarcity, which is, well, after this policy is no longer in place, the incentives still remain. So we're going to continue to, we're going to perpetuate this problem. We're just delaying the repercussions. And so when we think about the policy tools we use or the changes we make or the way that we, we think about water scarcity and solving it, we need to make sure that the solutions we advocate for are as dynamic as the problem we're trying to address. And this is the idea that if we're dealing with something that's a wicked problem, something where it constantly changes and the information isn't known and it evolves over time, we want to advocate for solutions that also are dynamic and flexible and move over time. So this is you know, why I advocate so much for markets, because markets and trade are dynamic and they're flexible and they allow you know, people to react and respond differently based on the relative supply of water in a given year. And so that's ultimately why I think when we're looking to the future about how do we deal with water scarcity, I think it's not enough to change prior appropriation or change you know, you know, some of the rules. I think we, we also might want to think about are there alternative ways to allocate water that would allow this flexibility to adapt and address in the future to more droughts or you know less rainfall? Yeah. So based on this conversation, I have two questions that popped into my head. The first one is the population-induced scarcity 
makes total sense. And if you look at kind of census trajectories, you know, over the past few decades, the West, particularly the Southwest, is growing like crazy. So you have cities like Phoenix, Tucson, Vegas, LA, San Diego, Denver, Salt Lake, all these places are booming. And these also happen to be some of the driest places in the country. And actually, I mean, Phoenix is one of the hottest cities in the world, which is kind of crazy. What do we do about population-induced scarcity? Is is this problem largely because water is artificially cheap there? Like if people had to pay the actual market rate of water, would fewer people choose to live there? I think it honestly, there are, there are a lot of factors to it. So I think the price is one thing. But the truth is, you know, municipalities make up 20% of water use. Agriculture makes up about, I think, 79%. And then like the remaining 1% is industry. So predominantly the water is in agriculture. And I don't want this to sound like I'm critiquing farmers for like using all the water because the truth is they have the property rights to the water. So it's not a bad or good. It's this is how it is. And so when we think about cities and like this population-induced scarcity, um, first, what's interesting is we look at, we can look at, at least in Phoenix, the ability for the city to kind of create new technology. And I think this is correct. I think I'm phrasing it correctly, but it's the amount, the total water use has gone down and the per capita water use has gone down over time. So it's like, despite the fact that we have more people moving to Phoenix, we're using less we're using less total water and then less water per person. So that's one way to think about, all right, so technology might help alleviate this kind of population-induced scarcity. But then the other thing is, well, okay, if cities are growing in demand and all the water is in agriculture, is there a way to come up with a solution where farmers can you know sell any extra water or lease that extra water to cities to allow them to kind of meet this growing demand without compromising agriculture and that's one of the short-term solutions which is rotational fallowing the idea that cities pay a farmer to temporarily fallow their land which is environmentally good for the land in short short bursts um, and then the farmer is able to then you know allow that move that water to the city and the city can use it um, and so that's like one way that we can, in the short term, think about, well, how do we alleviate this population-induced scarcity? Oh, actually, it ties into policy-induced scarcity. So like, how do we, how do we like think about those two buckets together? But yeah, I think in the long term, what we want to think about is, okay, how do we facilitate the trade of water? Because the truth is all the water, like majority of the water is in ag, cities are growing in demand and that there'd be beneficial trade if we can move water temporarily um, from ag to urban. So what's standing in the way of that and thinking carefully about that. And that's actually exactly where my second question was going. So I know before we had talked about kind of these short-term policy goals, and you've already um, kind of implied some skepticism about the prior appropriation system that we have in the Western US. The prior appropriation system has existed for, you know, a century and a half or more. How is it that we change directions from that, especially since it's a, like a legal property right? Do we need to compensate people? That's often what we do. Like, you know, that's how markets work. If I want something you have or I want you to change whatever you're doing, I can pay you to do it. And, you know, that is a win-win situation. We both get what we want. Uh, but where these are a property right, 
do you envision some sort of compensation principle as like the long-term solution to this system? And if that's the case, do you have thoughts on where this money is coming from? So I'm going to back up one step and try and explain kind of prior appropriation, some of the issues with it, and then why I think ultimately like it makes sense to consider an alternative. So I like to describe prior appropriation as a champagne tower where you have the glasses like tiered up and someone's pouring the champagne. And the idea is the first glass on top has to be filled completely before the next tier of glasses can be filled. And this is the priority in prior appropriation. The prior glass needs to be filled. The prior water right must be filled before the other ones can get their water. And so this is the idea that the oldest water rights, the most senior water rights are filled first and then the next one. And so by year you go down. And what makes this difficult is if you want, if you are, let's say you're a third tier glass, If you pull out a third tier glass to dump champagne in a lower tier or an upper tier, what happens to the tower? It's going to fall over. (laughs) Yeah, it's going to fall over. The structural integrity is compromised. Um, And this is, you know, this is why trade is hard in prior appropriation, because you've guaranteed that people get water in a specific order. And if you change that order, if you pull out a glass, you affect the timing that other glasses receive champagne, and you also could upset the entire you know, tower itself. So this is why trade is so costly. It's not that it's impossible. It's just there's a lot of costs and the costs differ person by person. And if we think about you know, needing to move water in the future from ag to urban or even urban to ag or you know, whatever we want to do, we start to say, okay, well, that trade is really costly. So what are alternatives to that? What are ways that we can lower the costs? And one method that has been used is share-based allocation. So like prior appropriation is a champagne tower, share-based allocation is a pie. So the pie is the total amount of water in any given year. And each person owns like a slice of it. And if the pie is smaller, so if the water is less in any given year, the pie shrinks and every person is affected equally. Now in the champagne tower, if the champagne runs out, what happens? Uh, the top glasses get some and the bottom ones don't. <laughs> exactly. It's like there's the 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 water shortage is disproportionately affecting individuals, which means their responses or the way that they react to water scarcity also is different. And in the pie example, if everyone's affected the same way, we might expect some uniformity in the response to water scarcity. Now in the pie example, it also is very easy to kind of switch these slices or interchange them because we don't have to think about this return flow. We don't necessarily have to think about, you know, the pouring, like who gets the order isn't there. The order of delivery isn't there. And so the question is that you've asked and that, you know, many, many economists asked and that part of my dissertation was, well, one, who has done a share-based market? Two, does it work? Three, how does it affect people if it is in place? You know, who's affected? How does it affect agricultural communities? And then the final, and I think most important question is, well, if it works and if it isn't harmful, how do we implement it more? And so I'll focus on kind of that last part of like, how do we implement it or how do we change? We move from prior appropriation. Do we compensate people? 
Maybe. I think in the past, we've seen people voluntarily within irrigation districts say, all right, we're going to join the district and the district will hold all the water rights as prior appropriative rights, but they'll allocate them as shares. And so I think if we're thinking about like in the near future, what is a reasonable thing that could happen that also doesn't require purchasing out of shares or, you know, government reallocating property rights, because they are property rights. We can't just take them. We might think about people saying, actually, it's, you know, safer for me. I have more consistency in my expected water delivery by participating in the share-based market in my community. And because I benefit from that, I'm willing to kind of move from prior appropriation to this share-based allocation within an irrigation district. And I think that kind of decision and that kind of switch makes sense at a local level. And maybe if you have enough people doing this on a local level, you could aggregate it up. So if you have, you know, 12 counties doing it in the same area, maybe you can aggregate that up to be more of a a district question. But at the end of the day, we want to, one, respect the property rights of individuals and also respect that it might not be the best to make that switch for every person. And it's not something that we should tell people they have to do because we don't necessarily know all the information to say, you have to do this. It's the best to come in as an outside source. So it's kind of like a roundabout way to answer all the things, but yeah. Yeah. That's fascinating. Cause I was thinking, like you were mentioning, it seems like it would be in the self-interest of a lot of the junior water rights owners to join into this share-based scheme, but I could see say the most senior water rights uh, owners not wanting to do that because, you know, it, you know, they lucked out, they have the, the nicest one. But I suppose it sounds like from the way you described it is you wouldn't need 100% participation in the share-based system to actually make it pretty effective. You could have you a majority of water rights owners, you know, put their water rights into a district in the share-based scheme. It, it, am I understanding you right? Yeah. So this was my final chapter of my dissertation, and we're still very much working on this. So it's not like finalized research, but essentially this is the question we asked of, okay, so what do we do with this like transition where prior appropriative and share-based rights kind of coexist? What are the outcomes? What are the characteristics of individuals that participate in a system like that? And do they skew relatively senior? Do they skew relatively junior? You know, do they trade more? Do they not trade more? What do they grow? Like, you know, what is the diversification? You know, tons and tons of questions about this. And I built out a data set that allowed me to look at, you know, all the individuals who have access to appropriative and share-based rights and compare them to people right outside a boundary where they only have access to prior appropriative rights and to look over the past, you know, 200 years or so and say, how has that affected them? What does the composition, like what are the compositional changes that happen? And what we find is, you know, there, there are small differences in, you know, more junior users tend to participate in share base. I think don't quote me on that. Cause I'm not, I don't have my results up right now, <laughs> um, but you know, small differences. But overall, what we found is, you know, if you only have access to prior appropriative rights, you tend to respond strongly to droughts, and you're very kind of beholden to this. You know, senior users are not affected by droughts because they're always 
receiving water, whereas junior users really have to plan for water variability. And you see that distinction and that discrepancy amongst the different priorities when you only have access to prior appropriative rights. But then when you look at people who have access to shares and prior appropriate rights, they can kind of choose which ones they want. You start to see those differences dampened. So you start to say, oh, wow, both the junior and senior users are growing similar things. Their their composition of their crops are very similar. Their priority quantiles are similar. Their, um, what else did we find? You know, their likelihood that they end up developing is lower. Their, you know, persistence in agriculture is higher. Like you, you start to notice these, these differences and you're able to kind of tease out, all right, what actually happens when we have this hybrid system? Because that's probably, if it were to happen, that's how it would be unrolled, rolled out. It would not, it would not be just one day we have share-based. It's no, actually it's to coexist. Yeah, and so I guess that process of transition, at least your preliminary evidence is suggesting that that transition and the direction towards like a full share-based allocation scheme, it yields the desirable outcomes that we would want. Very, very preliminary results that could change at any moment. Um, But what we do find is, you know, the impact of, say, a drought on individuals who have access to kind of shares and prior appropriative rights is less. So they appear less susceptible to drought, which is what we'd expect if you can kind of, you know, mix and match your priority right and your share base, right? Because they have two different levels of uncertainty. You can kind of create this like portfolio of risk, essentially, portfolio of water risk. And so what that allows you to do in the long term is what you know, very preliminary results, but, you know, you, you do adapt, you, you look different than people who only have access to one, which is encouraging because what that means is, wow, we don't have to have a perfect, uh, single institution. We actually can live in kind of this imperfect world where there's hybrids of institutions. Maybe it's more polycentric than we think. Um, and it actually still achieves the results that theory would suggest. Well, I'm excited to hear where this research goes. And once <laughs> Me too. Yeah, yeah, once the vital results come out, either way, it will be very fascinating and important. Um, Thank you. Thank you. So we've talked a little bit about climate change. We've talked about water rights. Uh, to end, I just want to ask you a few questions about public lands. So I know you're an avid outdoor enthusiast. You spend a lot of time on federal lands like national parks, national forests. I believe you just uh, did about 50 miles of rim to rim in the Grand Canyon, which is very impressive. It honestly was a lot easier than I thought. I really think it's more manageable than people make it out to be. It, I had fun the entire time, so I would highly recommend to everyone. Yeah, it, it's on my bucket list. I've been to the Grand Canyon a bunch of times that I've done hikes, but I've never done the full rim to rim. So. Ooh, well, when you're ready, let me know and I'll go with you. <laughs> I'll be in contact. Um, yes. For people who don't spend a lot of time on federal land, like national parks, national forests, what insights do you have about federal land that you wish other people knew? So you are on federal lands a lot and you have a degree in sustainability and you have economics training. What, how does that uniquely position you to know something that other people should know? Yeah, I mean, 
So this kind of ties back into our tacit knowledge. There are certain things that you can only understand by doing them. And I would say this is kind of like the mantra of also ultra running, which I've fallen in love with, which is you can't really understand what it's like to run anything over 26.3 until you just do it. And like, there's certain things you can't predict. There's certain things you just like, you can't describe. It's just like, it's this very, you know, almost spiritual experience, if you will. And I think there's something also about like, public land and um, federal land that also is the same way. And that can we really understand conservation and environmental preservation if we're not using the, like not using the land, but like sharing it or, you know, going out and hiking and using the trails and understanding kind of what it means, like what our impact is on national parks when we use them, what our fees actually pay for. And then also why are they worth preserving? And and seeing that, I think, and experiencing it and using it is very different than kind of reading about these things. So, I mean, what I wish people would do is, you know, go out and spend some time in nature, like go hiking, go backpacking. You know, the world is your playground, as one of my friends always tells me. She wants to just go play outside. And so I, I do wish people would you know, do that. And I don't know if that's insight or if it's just me loving being outside and wishing that we could just make it extremely normal. (laughs) But I do think that what that kind of brings up is, you know, we're kind of loving our, our national parks to death in that there's, you know, this deferred maintenance log of 22 billion, where our parks really do need help and they do need, you know, better infrastructure, you know, all all sorts of things. And so I think something that's really interesting and cool that Perk is doing is thinking about innovative ways to say, well, how do we help this deferred maintenance backlog? How do we think about navigating these infrastructure shortages um, and create and thinking about like more creative funding modeling to really help us get the most out of our parks without, without, you know, doing it at the expense of the park itself? Yeah, that's that was beautifully stated because I grew up not very far outside of Yellowstone. So I've been to Yellowstone National Park, I don't know, probably 80 or 90 times in my life. Oh my goodness, I've been once. <laughs> uh, so Yellowstone is always my favorite place. But growing up when I would go with my family, we would always go in the off season. So, you know, a little bit before Memorial Day or a little bit after Labor Day. And so I always thought of Yellowstone as this, you know, we would literally have the park to ourselves. We like wouldn't see that many people there. And so it's like, you know, this is such a special place. And then as an adult, now I've taken several groups of friends through Yellowstone. And just because of scheduling, we always have to go, you know, right in the middle of summer, you know, height of tourist season. And when you talk about loving our national parks to death, that's when you see it just hordes of people, throngs just all over the place. I'm a very um, conflict averse person. I don't usually get mad at people, but on more than one occasion in Yellowstone, I have literally screamed at people who stepped off the boardwalks, you know, for their own safety too. It was like, hey, don't step off the boardwalk and fall into, you know, an acidic hot spring that will kill you. Uh, so it's like, hey, I'm helping you with your own self-preservation here, but also um, don't ruin this like unique geological feature. <laughs> yeah. No, I think that it's, it's kind of this tension of like, 
I'm an, like, like you said, I'm an outdoor enthusiast. I want to take everyone rim to rim to rim. Like I want to take everyone running. I want to, you know, like if anyone asked me to go outside and backpack or, you know, run or bike or whatever, I'm like, yes, I will go immediately. I will take anybody to do this. So I have this like very strong desire to make, you know, trail running, for example, or ultra running, like incredibly accessible. Like I want everyone to feel like they can do it and enjoy it. And like, that they can go at any time and that it's a, a good experience. But that's sometimes at odds with like, wow, we have to think carefully about using our parks because we are loving them to death. And like, there is a cost to us using them. And so balancing that kind of accessibility with, you know, how do we actually create funding models that, you know, keep, preserve our parks and think about the longevity of the parks. And also, yeah, I mean, just like stuff you said, whereas, you know, preventing degradation by, you know, what, you know, it's, it's, it's not just one person stepping off of the trail. It's like, you know, the hundredth person that day, because it's peak season, who's stepping off the trail and that makes a difference. Yeah, exactly. Right. And I mean, really rethinking about management schemes, funding schemes is important, not just for national parks, but for all, you know, all sorts of different federal lands, because as you know, a lot of national parks are getting more and more crowded. I know some national parks are now during peak season, you have to get like basically timed tickets to go in. Some of like the the smaller parks that don't have a lot of, you know, parking or road space to actually put all the people. I'm thinking like Zion National Park or Arches National Park in Utah, Yosemite in California, you know, they you have to have a ticket, like a pre-time ticket to get in. Um, a lot of people are now going to other types of public lands. So other places, national monuments or national forest land that are, you know, just as beautiful as national parks. And so places that usually haven't had a lot of people before are now having this influx of people who are like, hey, let's not go to Yellowstone. Let's go to, I don't know, the Sawtooth in Idaho or something. And then now you have, you know, a whole influx of people into a place that just can't really handle it. And then we can start to love other places to death too. So yeah, it's, I want people to experience the beauty of the outdoors, just like you were saying. And it's like, yeah, we, we have to do it in a way that I guess in a responsible way. And that really comes down to kind of a management and funding decision. Yeah. It's, I think it's a combination and sorry to bring up ultra running so much. It's just the community I'm a part of most, but it's, I think that community does a really good job of saying we want it to be accessible. We want long distances and remote places to be accessible to everyone. But because we want it to be accessible to everyone, there's a strong culture of norms. So it's like you, you know, with our national parks, it's like, you know, yeah, we need creative funding funding models. But then there also, you know, maybe needs to be a strong culture of norms. And like, how do we respect our parks? How do we respect the, you know, what is the role of us who are outdoor enthusiasts and, you know, the communities that we're a part of in kind of passing on these norms. So it's, you know, kind of the marriage of maybe Ostrom and Hayek and all those people. Yeah, that's great. Well, I have very much enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me and I hope we can talk again soon. I hope so too, Jordan. This was wonderful. Thank you so much for inviting me. And it's always so fun to talk with you and just hear your thoughts on things too. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. 
For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.